This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, April 20th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Is the solution to stemming the tide of dangerous levels of federal debt making the process look more like the congressional process for shifting and closing military bases? Cato's Romina Baccia and William Glass of the Millennial Debt Foundation discuss how best to move the needle on reining in U.S. debt in a rational and, importantly, politically palatable way. William, let's start with you. Tell us about the Millennial Debt Foundation. The Millennial Debt Foundation was uh, started by the current Hamilton County Mayor, Weston Womp, in, um, in league with his one of his mentors, the late Senator Tom Coburn. Um, and it was a it was basically uh, the fruit of Tom Coburn's career-long warning to the country about the debt and who was likely to have to deal with the fallout and the consequences if the debt was not brought under more control. And um, so Weston began to discover um, that it would be our generation, millennials, that were going to bear or eat the twisted fruit of this problem. And as we began to talk about it and gather um, our commissioners and 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 the people uh, the people who've worked with us on this project, we began to we re- we realized we had a solidarity in this. A lot of us were concerned about this. A lot of us realized that we were going to live in an economy that was going to increasingly crowd out our ability to do good. It was going to crowd out opportunity, and it was going to harm most of all uh, the people who need uh, the government's help the most. Over the next 30, 40 years, they were going to be harmed most of all by a runaway debt and irresponsible fiscal policy. So that's how the foundation was started. We, we decided we wanted to gather millennials to start a discussion and then actually move the needle on the issue. Um, and that's how we started. What does moving the needle look like in practice? Because for all of the discussions that I've seen or heard, it seems that not much really moves the needle on this issue. That's a fair point. There's a couple ways to think about it. I think one is, I mean, obviously, you know, if I could wave a magic wand over my scenario, we would, our leaders would actually act. They would act meaningfully on this. And that's not a, that's not something that no one has proposed a way to do. There's lots of options if we have the will to do it. Secondarily, in the event that we just remain possessed of leaders who refuse to take up serious action about this, then what Millennial Debt Foundation can do is provide um, a kind of a, a way forward when the issue does become impossible to ignore. Unfortunately, it will cost us a lot more than it will hurt a lot more people. But if we can be there as a sign of what to do next, whenever it becomes impossible to do nothing, um, that will be less success than we want, but that may, that may be what there is. So, um, moving the needle is essentially it's policy being enacted by leaders who we sent to go to Washington and do responsible things on the people's behalf. That's what moving the needle is. Romina, uh, you wrote recently on the Cato blog, sort of detailing the, uh, proposals of the millennial debt foundation, uh, at listing them as, you know, reforms millennials can, should, ought to get behind. Uh, Could you walk us through a few of those? Yes. So most importantly, the Millennial Debt Foundation tackles the biggest drivers of growing spending and debt. That's Medicare and Social Security. Um, And when I say biggest drivers, according to the Treasury Financial Report, 
95% of U.S. government unfunded obligations over the next 75 years are driven by just these two programs. So to make any difference in our long-term debt trajectory, you have to tackle Social Security and Medicare. Uh, but the changes that the uh, foundation recommends are very sensible. They focus benefits on those beneficiaries who need them the most and focus changes to things like a reduction in the growth in benefits, making benefits uh, less generous for higher income earners um, on those individuals who can bear to do with less uh, there was actually a really interesting letter to the editor in the New York Times recently where uh, a couple wrote that uh, they collect 40000 a year from Social Security. Meanwhile, they have a uh, seven-figure net worth, and it only makes sense to means test it. They don't need the money, and certainly they understand that this is contributing to our debt crisis. So it's those kinds of reforms. Um, they also they, they tackle a lot of bad uh, taxes. So, for example, the employer exclusion for um, healthcare that is one of the primary drivers of healthcare cost growth is this third-party payer system that distorts incentives. And so overall, those 10 recommendations um, make a key difference in the long-term debt trajectory, uh, reducing it significantly by 50 percentage points over 30 years, uh, which is big, and doing all of that um, by protecting benefits for the most vulnerable and, and cutting where it makes the most sense. Uh, William, one of your proposals is to extend the cap on the SALT deduction. Um, yes. This is, not, this is not being met with zero opposition. There are members of Congress in both New York and California, surprise, surprise, who are interested in getting rid of the cap uh, as, it, as it has been before 2017. Yes, it's very nice for uh, for people in wealthy states to have their uh, all of their state perks subsidized by the people in poorer states. That's a really great benefit. Who wouldn't want that? Uh, I was wondering, you know, I've speaking, spoken with uh, other uh, scholars on the subject. Uh, what about just repealing the 16th Amendment? Would that have a, an effect on the demand for new spending from the federal level? Uh <laughs> uh I'm I'm not I'm not going to walk into that. That's another story for another day. I think uh so long as I mean I think the the thing that I want to say about what MDF is up to is that we're dealing with realistic proposals. Um you know, I, I we don't need to have three-fourths majority of the country and then ratified by uh, three-fourths of the states in order to make the kind of changes that can actually make a serious difference in the problem. Um we 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 actually are not dealing with a with a an intractable issue. Uh we're dealing with a little bit of an education issue, a little bit of a bad comms issue and um and and we've hired people who are incentivized to ignore this problem um everything but these two entitlements that ramina mentioned a few minutes ago is a rounding error uh everything else that we can touch we can if we don't touch those we can fix literally everything else and it will not matter um so this is an issue where there's a critical need to get good education to the public and and also to our leaders and to the 25 year olds who run the world um from their bosses offices that that there's a there's a way forward on this. There's real possibility. I think this is a winnable fight, and that's that's the the Tom Coburn legacy for us is that this is a fight we can win. There are things we can do. We may not have to be able to do all of that at once, but we can make incremental progress. And so we don't have to repeal a constitutional amendment in order to make this work. Uh, Romina, with respect to uh, 
spending cuts now or spending cuts later. Uh, it was either a calculation that you pointed me to. Uh, it might have been yours. Uh, I, I, I can't recall at the moment. But the idea was uh, the trade-off between big spending cuts now and resuming our re normal regular rate of growth or reducing spending over time by smaller fractions. Which do you prefer? Well, and which do which do you, and which do you think is more politically uh, saleable? You know, I think the strategy that the House is employing right now makes sense. We need uh, some immediate spending cuts to get lawmakers in the habit of this is what's needed now. But then for some of the biggest programs, Medicare, Social Security being the prime targets here, um, it's really difficult to make big changes because um, so many people do rely on them in retirement. And to the degree that we can make big changes, they would need to be focused on the highest income earners that can bear those. But I think overall, politically, it's just not feasible not to gradually phase in entitlement reform. I think that's going to be uh, going to be necessary unless we are in a major financial crisis and lawmakers are forced to make those changes. But I, that's the exact scenario that we want to avoid. Um, but yeah, cutting discretionary spending right away, um, cutting down government programs and agencies uh, back to size returning more responsibilities to the states and localities that can best represent the interests of their constituents. All of those are changes we can make immediately. And then importantly, phasing in changes to healthcare programs and other old age entitlements like Social Security. Those will have to happen more gradually. But as William pointed out, if we don't tackle those, um, there's almost nothing else matters. Uh, so, there's, it seems like we have one party that is broadly not super interested in reducing spending. We have another party that says they're interested in reducing spending, and whenever they get in power, they bust the bank. Uh, and we have mm -hmm. uh, age cohorts in America that as they age and are more likely to be collecting uh, benefits from the feds, just so happens they're also much more likely to vote. That's right. It's not really. You, a, it's you not hit a the question, nail on the head. Go ahead. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head, and I think that's why we need this exact process that the Millennial Debt Foundation used to arrive at their ten proposals in Congress. I think Congress should stand up an independent commission, staffed with outside experts picked by both parties, that uh, put together a reform proposal that tackles Medicare and Social Security, makes sure that both programs are solvent over the next 75 years at a minimum and stabilizes the debt in the process. Uh, debt is at almost 100% of GDP, which is everything the economy produces and goods and services in a given year that is too high, that is dragging down growth now. Um, but I don't think politicians, like you pointed out, will tackle these problems by themselves responsibly. So they need to be insulated from the political risk. And I think that's where an independent commission can be most helpful. Uh, this is, uh, I think this is, this kind of idea, ha uh, William, has been, uh, the parallel has been drawn between this and BRAC, which is the base realignment and closings uh, system that, that was established in the 2010s, seemed to work pretty well, which is to say the, the goals are clear, the uh, group has a clear mandate, and then it's an up or down vote in Congress mm -hmm for the package of uh, reforms to uh, our bases. Um, so it, it sounds promising in the sense that there's a way to take politics out of it 
Uh, every member of Congress in that situation gets one really hard vote instead of uh, getting hammered over and over and over again on uh, smaller votes to reduce spending. Um, so, so how are these members selected for the group that you suggest? Yes, that's a, I was going to, I'm really, really glad that, uh, that Ramina mentioned the, the nonpartisan commission. She's been advocating for that in writing. And I think she's actually drawn the comparison to BRAC explicitly several times in her own writing. I'm grateful for that because that is exactly, um, that's, that is how we've thought about this too. The, the idea is to get subject matter experts together. And, um, and initially this is one of our, uh, I think one of the the most exciting things about the Millennial Debt Foundation is that it's not a Beltway five hundred one c three or or c four. It is not. Uh, it 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 was it was originated by people having a conscience about the issue um, as those who were going to be responsible to see it solved. Um, those who were going to end up paying this back, I, both themselves in their own um, in their own pocketbooks and in their own wallets, but also most of us who have, are part of the foundation are responsible for employees who do not, who are not positioned as well as us, maybe socioeconomically and ha- are going to pay more of a cost. So it's out of a, a sense of conscience that, a bunch of non-politicians got together to, uh, to uh, most of whom were entrepreneurs that were just running in the same network. And together we realized this is an issue that's not going to just hamper our, like we, the wealthy among us, we are going to be fine, actually. No matter what happens, we're going to pivot and be fine. Who's not going to be fine is people who are walking up an opportunity ladder right now. Who's not going to be fine are people who depend upon the government when indiscriminate cuts have to happen because we wouldn't make them in time. And so our foundation was a bunch of entrepreneurs who realized that our own employees' lives were going to be at stake and we wanted to do something about it. And then as we began to gather, what's unique is entrepreneurs know entrepreneurs. So we would pull each other in. And what was what what I think is amazing is that 95% of those people, myself included, uh, had voted before, but had never been seriously involved in politics before, precisely because we find politics to be so intractable, precisely because it's it, it seems like nothing can ever get done. But this this way forward, especially that Ramina has been advocating for in her writing recently, um, we we see that as the way forward too. that we need to, that we need uh, non lawmakers to be gathering and participating in a discussion, contributing subject matter expertise to make very, very clear to everybody who has a vote to cast what's going to happen if this doesn't get better quickly. And then give them a bonded proposal that says, this is one thing, one yes, one no. Do you want your, do you want millennial citizens? Do you want their children? Do you want their aging grandparents to be beaten up by, uh, harangued from the pillar of inflation to the post of recession or not? So to both of you then, uh, with respect to Congress and its power of the purse, what does the next five years look like in your view? And what what are you hopeful uh, can be achieved? Yeah, one thing that uh, we noticed um, that is um, opening a window of opportunity potential for Medicare reform, which is the most important reform. If we're going to reform just one program, Medicare should be the one. And uh, the president, even though over his State of the Union, he was um, being very negative about potential changes to Medicare and Social Security. Um, Following that, he actually released a budget where he put forth a number of proposals on Medicare. And while I'm not too excited about the actual details, which are primarily uh, price controls on uh, drugs 
and uh, more more taxes, higher taxes, particularly on small businesses and entrepreneurs. I think the fact that the president is putting forth uh, any proposal to say, you know, Medicare is running out of money. There will be automatic benefit cuts. We want to avoid those. I think that creates an opportunity to say, okay, what reforms can we work on together? So one uh, one area right now is to say, okay, if benefit cuts are off the table, what are some administrative and bureaucratic reforms that introduce more market forces into Medicare that can help reduce costs while actually increasing the quality of the services delivered for seniors? And there's a whole range of proposals that are also in the Millennial Debt Foundation plan um, that I think uh, conservatives and uh, uh, libertarians and um Progressives should be able to get behind if we can all um, just be sensible and say that, you know, the way Medicare works right now, it doesn't actually work that well. We shouldn't pretend that doing nothing is the best option. There are better options on the table. And now is the time to make those changes because Medicare's trust fund will run out of money by 2028. That's only five years down the road. So we have to do something. So let's do something productive. Uh, William, we call Medicare and Social Security entitlements, but that's it's a bit of a lie in the sense that nobody's actually entitled to any of it. It's uh, uh, you know largely a transfer program, and your entitlement to it is based on Congress's ability and desire to fund it. Yes, that's correct. But I think it's worth saying that, I mean, th- that in general, um, especially in the generation of people who are nearing and, and coming near to retirement now, that um, when it when it comes to entitlement, the, the, the marketing of entitlement was your permission to allow us to garnish this bit of your wages and your earning power over the course of your entire life is going to be bargained off by then a return that, that you are quote unquote entitled to later. But most people, especially those retiring now, are going to spend a, nearly a third of their lives being funded by these programs. And I, uh, from what I can see, the average dollar amount is nearly two or three to one in terms of what they've paid in and what they're getting back. So it seems to me uh, that entitlement is a misnomer. I, they, if anything, it is, it's turning into a massive vehicle for the transfer of wealth from the middle class to the wealthy. William Glass is with the Millennial Debt Foundation. Romina Baccia directs budget and entitlement policy at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.